Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Thank you so much for watching or listening. Now, I have an incredibly exciting guest. Her name is Karen Seltz. Karen Seltz has triumphed over depression and sex addiction. One of Karen's greatest gifts is her ability to see the beauty and possibility in people and mirror it back to them. Karen stopped playing small and gained her confidence by doing the deep inner work that she now shares with her clients as a transformational mindset and spirituality coach. Karen has been called to be a loving interpretation to the disempowering stories, beliefs and patterns her clients have held that have kept them stuck. That sounds common. (laughs) Karen supports analytical perfectionist women in connecting to their hearts, emotions, and bodies to step out of their comfort zones with courage and power. She assists women in learning to trust themselves and their intuition and intentionally creates lives filled with fun, joy, spontaneity, meaning, and contribution. This is going to be an empowering episode. Karen has a master's degree in counseling, is a certified life coach, and a brain gym consultant. This is her story and this is her passion. Karen, welcome to Passion Harvest. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Louisa. (laughs) I am so stoked to be here and I can't wait to see what unfolds. My journey, gosh. Whatever comes to mind. Yeah, I think the big moments were the messages that I took from childhood about, it started with being a girl. I was the youngest of three children, and my mom was the strong one in the house. However, the messages I got from my dad and my brothers were that it's not okay to be emotional. It's not okay to show that you're hurting. It's not okay to be you. And that being emotional or crying meant you were a girl And being a girl meant you were weak and not as good as a boy or a man. And I really took that in. And I just denied everything feminine about me. And like I always tell people, to this day, I still do not cry from physical pain. I broke my foot and I didn't cry. (laughs) I'm like, it hurts. Yeah. Conditioning. Yeah, I cry now. I allow myself to feel everything and to feel it deeply. And it's okay. It it took me a while to give myself permission to do that. And it was actually in the 12 step rooms recovering from sex addiction that I allowed myself to do that for the first time. And I was the only woman in those rooms oftentimes. And I was going through withdrawal from my drug of choice, which was sex. And I would just cry the entire meeting. I would just like sit there and, (laughs) but it was so healing to allow myself to be seen and just to allow myself to feel those emotions. Mm. The things I think that led me to choose sex as my 
drug of choice, we're kind of complicated. You know, I've analyzed this to death. Yeah. And I think the messages I received from my dad were that women are good for only one thing. And then from my brothers, like, you better be good at it, or we're going to talk smack about you behind your back. And so I, it was my intention to be like the very best at sex. <laughs> and and it, I almost studied it like an art. Like I paid attention to the subtleties of my partner's satisfaction. And I grew to be an addict of praise and of power. I would manipulate men to get them to have sex with me. Men that were maybe married or had girlfriends that shouldn't want to have sex with me. And that gave me this sense of power and worth. I felt worthy if a man wanted to have sex with me. It was just so skewed in my mind. It's very hard to start at the beginning, but how, I mean, everyone enjoys sex or generally, how do you become a sex addict? What, what do you classify as a sex addict? For and me, how did you it, start? Yeah, it started when my youngest daughter was born prematurely. She had a whole host of medical issues. And my ex-husband started numbing out with alcohol more and more and just wasn't present and wasn't helpful to me. And I was super depressed and I was drowning and I was having suicidal thoughts every day. Like, how can I go on? And what triggered it, oddly enough, was I had a nanny that I counted on. She was my teammate and she was the only one around that was helping me and she quit. And it triggered these abandonment issues I didn't even know I had. And I was a mess. And my daughter had a surgery, a neurosurgery coming up. And I went for a massage. And at that point, I was cut off from my body. I was not having sex with my husband. I wasn't masturbating, nothing. And I just called for a massage at my regular place. And I ended up getting a man. And as I was being massaged, I'm like, oh, oh, I have a body. And it started to turn like sexual. I got turned on. And so I hit on this guy. I, I started during the relationship. Massage. Yeah. I started having a sexual relationship with him the next time I went in for a massage. And I enjoyed it. And I came to like think that that was what was saving my life. I equated it with survival because I was so desperate, so low, so depressed. And when he was not available, every time I wanted to have sex, like when he said no to me, I felt extremely rejected. And so I added another person. So I was having sex with him. I started having sex with my husband again. And then I started having sex with a third person. And sometimes they were all on the same day. So, wow. Yeah. And then I discovered uh, websites, I'm going to say. Um, I don't like to mention any specifics mm -hmm. because I don't want to give people any ideas. Thankfully, this was before the advent of apps. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank God, because it could have been really ugly. But I placed an ad with no picture and hundreds of men responded, which, you know, talk about like a power junkie. I was like, 
so high. So you could from, pick and choose. Yeah. And, and so I did. Ranges. Yes. And when it got kind of to the height of my addiction, I could be in the middle of having sex with somebody and panic would strike inside me like, <gasps> when am I going to get this again? Like I have nothing else lined up. And I couldn't think. Like that consumed my mind all the time, either thinking about what I had done or planning for the next thing or doing it. And I was not present anywhere. And I had little children. Do you, do you think, I just, the phrase comes to mind, looking for love in all the wrong places. Do you think you were looking for love as well or you, you preferred it when they were a stranger and there was no uh, emotions involved? Or we, did you want to be held? There are no, a few questions. Not, not, no, not by these guys. I did not want to be held. It was, it, it was. It wasn't all, wanting love or looking for love. It was just the act of having sex. It started out that way with almost everybody. There was a component that if I got rejected, if they said no to me, I, I would get, I would be suicidal again. If anybody, like these people that I didn't even know, if they said, oh, I can't make it, I'd be like, oh, and I equated my self-worth with their willingness to want to be with me. Uh, there was a time when I was with a married guy and we were having sex for like seven months and I didn't have any other partners at that time besides my husband and I did have that, oh, I wish he would fall in love with me and save me because I felt like trapped. But I don't know. This, this was a different animal. It wasn't so much motivated by wanting love. It was wanting power, praise, pleasure, and safety. Oddly enough, I, got, I felt safe as long as somebody wanted me. So that not all of the sexual partners you saw more than once, multiple times, some you just only saw once and that was it? I think only one, maybe I saw only once. I usually like to repeat them until I didn't want to. <laughs> and I guess there was a power or a perceived power in that as well when, when it was ended for you. you, you were the one that ended it. Yeah, for sure. And how long did this go on for? Uh, I, it started hmm, when my daughter was about, I'm going to say like 17 months old and she's now almost 13. And I acted out not very long when I was married because I got an STD and had to come clean. (laughs) Because your husband obviously didn't know about your sexual adventures. And, and that really like tanked him and he still hasn't recovered from that. To be honest, he took it very personally and he hasn't recovered. And it's been, that was 2011. So it's been nine years or actually that was 2010. When I told him Mm -hmm. we separated in 2011 and divorced in 2012. I'm wondering how you juggled all these commitments or, um, experiences with young children and a husband as well there must have been a a lot of deceit going on which is also heartbreaking oh yeah I had a complete double life 
I tried to keep it very, very separate. And when I was married and acting out, it was with usually married men because they were safe. They weren't going to text me at night. Mm -hmm. And when I would go to work, work during the day, I only worked two days a week at that time. I had a nanny. I would just throw in into my appointments. I worked in outside sales, some sexual adventures, some dalliances. So I would only have two days a week usually to do that. My ex-husband used to go out with his friend one night a week. And sometimes I would have people over after my kids would go to sleep. At your home? At my home. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously you just mentioned you had an STD, but how did you stop this addiction? Hmm. That's a good question. So <laughs> at one point I, I got a boyfriend and I would say I thought I was sober at the time. And in retrospect, I acted out monogamously with only him, but I was still using him for sex. And I still felt validated by him wanting me. And then I had another boyfriend after that. And it was the same thing. Every time I saw him, I expected sex and he was normal, like a normal non-addict. <laughs> so, so what went, okay, just, I don't know what normal is, but how many times, were, what, what do you expect? How many times a day do you expect to have sex? Well, with him, he was, that guy was like my second boyfriend was kind of normal. And he was, well, I don't know if he was normal, but he was like a one and done kind of person. <laughs> so one and done okay <laughs> like that. but I only saw I only saw him half the week because he had children the other half sure so you know so four so times a week just educate me because so one and done whereas you would prefer a few and done <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to express myself yes <laughs> Well, I had a very high sex drive. I equated that to my worth. And the more I got, the more worthy I felt. Mm. So they were interconnected. And after that relationship ended, I went back out. So I was three years sober, but not really sober, acting out monogamously. I wasn't sober-minded, which was a big difference. After that relationship ended, it was, it was kind of ugly. He, he um, broke up with me and <laughs> I always joke, like he didn't get the memo that that just wasn't done. Nobody had broken up with me in my entire adult life. And I imploded. Yeah, it was really interesting. And I also got messages from him that nobody would ever accept me with my package deal of my daughters, because I had a daughter that was you know, really behaviorally challenged. <laughs> she was kind of loud and violent and, you know, I was working to get that under control as well. So I acted out in kind of an ugly way. It got as ugly as it ever got for 10 months after that. And at the end of that period, I was acting out with this guy that I became addicted to and I could not stand him as a person. So I was in constant conflict because I was trying to change myself to not cause conflict so I could still get my drug, him. Mm -hmm. And it, nothing worked. Like he was like a junior high girl. He was so easy to anger. 
and he was like turning on me and I hated myself. I, I couldn't even look in the mirror at that time because I was so addicted to him, like physically what he could do. He had like very special gifts, but I like philosophically he was. So wait, <laughs> wait, <laughs> oh no, Spe- no, <laughs> you did no, say special no. gifts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't really want to go into it, but okay. he, he caused my body to do things it had never done before mm-hmm. and have, has never done since. And yeah, it was really hard. And at one point I met with, I was still going to meetings, SAA meetings, Sex Addicts Anonymous. And I had lunch with my sponsor and I said, I am so deep into this addiction. I don't see a way out. I, I don't think I can ever stop. And he said, well, what do you think it's costing you? And I thought for a half a second, I said, well, I don't think it's costing me anything. And he's like, okay. He said, would you do me a favor and go home and make a list? I said, yeah, but it'll be a short list. And at that time I was super rebellious. I didn't follow any instructions from this man that was my sponsor. He was a gay man, which made it okay for him to sponsor me, but he wasn't sober. So I didn't respect him enough to take him seriously, but something inside me urged me to take this on. So I started making this list and at item number 39, I wrote, it's costing me everything because as long as I'm doing what I'm doing, I don't feel like I deserve anything good in life. And it was then that I'm like, what a powerful lesson. Yeah. And then right at that time, I hired a life coach that was a man. And I told him he was a straight man that I couldn't meet with him in person, even on video, because I would try to manipulate him because I was so sick at that time. So he agreed to meet with me by phone and he just asked me this simple, no, he told me something simple. He said, as long as you keep doing the same behaviors, you're going to get the same thing. And I'm like, so he says, as long as you continue in the addictive behavior, your life isn't going to change. And I'm like, oh, why didn't I think of that? I mean, it's so simple. <laughs> and so that was my sobriety date the next day I'm like okay I'm ready and it was those two things that coupled and it was July 15th 2015 was the last time I acted out and I define acting out as any sexual touching or talking even texting anything like that outside of a committed monogamous relationship and then I have other things like contacting former acting out partners and things like that. If I'm masturbating to numb out, to not feel my feelings, that's a no-no for me. Pornography is a no-no for me. Even though that was never my issue, I still, uh, it doesn't feel wholesome to me. It doesn't feel, like for me, sex now is an extension of love and a creating of intimacy together. It's, it's not to get my needs met. It's not to get off. It's not to get praise or power. It's just not for that. 
incredible lessons. Um, do you ever do you ever think about going back to your old ways as an addict? They say it's it's a lifelong process. Do you sometimes feel yourself drifting back to that sex addiction mentality? Not at all. Even early on, I didn't have a draw to it anymore. But what I did last summer was a trauma removal. It was like a trauma release program and it rewired my brain in such a way that it's not my identity anymore. I went to a meeting after that and you know, they introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Karen. I'm a, I'm an alcoholic or I'm a sex addict. I couldn't do it. I'm like, that's a lie. I'm like, that's not who I am. And I haven't been to a meeting since. <laughs> Good on you. And I really want to just ask about, you know, your dating plans, which we did talk about and things, but what, what, what's interesting in our society that if I was talking to a man, not to a woman as yourself, it'd be much more acceptable, which is, yeah, which is a real disparity in our society. Yeah, it is because, I don't know, I see it two ways though, because men almost have this expectation to be virile and to be the, or to have these conquests. And if they don't, society says, you're not manly, you're not masculine, you're not enough. And is it really who they are? Are they choosing to be that? I don't, I don't know. I know when men are in addictions, they'll say, well, everybody does this. It's okay. Everyone does it, especially with pornography. It's, it's so destructive. It's destructive to the soul and it degrades intimacy. Like if, if, if two people are together and one of them is giving their sexual energy to someone else, whether it's a live person or on a video screen, there's a divide between them. It, it's a, it forms a chasm. And it, the woman will definitely feel it. And I believe the man feels it too. I completely agree with you. And it's so addictive. Pornography is so addictive. I mean, many things are, but that rush yeah and now you have a dating plan do you mind just explaining that <laughs> i love the dating plan <laughs> yes i put together it's actually from sex and love addicts anonymous a dating plan a concept but it it just sets out like guidelines for me you know when i can do certain things and i wrote it so for example, I don't kiss until the third date. And I do that because if the guy's a good kisser and I kiss him on the first date, I'm like, oh gosh, I love him. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter if he's an asshole. I mean, if he's a good kisser, I would overlook so much. So I get to really check in and get to know this person on a different level first and establish some emotional intimacy prior to doing anything physical. And then I don't have any sexual contact of any kind, even over the clothes for at least a month. And that's like dating regularly. And 
it's only when we've had the conversation that we are monogamous. We've both gotten STD testing that we have shared with each other physically, you know, not just said, oh, I got mine, it's all clear. <laughs> yeah, so there, there are a lot of things that I put in place. And, and obviously you're, you know, you're very, I love your straightforward attitude and you're so upfront with everything. I'm just thinking, how do you, I won't say you're an expert, but you potentially have had a lot of experience. What is good sex? Mm. The best sex is when you are completely open, open hearted, uninhibited, and the two of you can just meld into one body and you don't have to think. You don't have to think about technique or gosh, you don't think at all. You're just being in the moment and allowing that experience to unfold and to just take you over. It, it, it's like the energy fields of two beings just merge and you can read each other's bodies, not minds, <laughs> bodies. Yeah. Uh, that was explained, explained really beautifully. I know particularly with women, they have many inhibitions about their body and especially during sex. Sometimes I'm even uncomfortable having this conversation with you. I know you're not. <laughs> How do women become more in touch with their sexuality and their bodies? and hence have wonderful sex? Mm. I would say the first thing is really to start exploring yourself. And not, I don't mean like just masturbating, but explore your senses. Like what happens if you touch your arm lightly or your face? Like men, it's rare that a man will touch my face. I don't know what it is, but it feels really nice. So what if you do that for yourself? and you learn all the things that feel nice sensually. And maybe you like a certain smell. So you put that fragrance in the air. Maybe you like candles. And romance yourself. Like what, how do you wish to be treated? Most women don't want to just be penetrated right away. They want something else first. So enjoy those parts of yourself, like the sensuality, the buildup. And one thing that's really interesting is I used to use a lot of toys, like vibrators and whatever. And somebody said to me, doesn't that kind of desensitize you for when you're with a partner? I'm like, well, I don't think so. I don't know. But it does. <laughs> I go, well, okay. Because when I was getting sober, I did a period of no masturbation, no sex, no flirting. I call it pure abstinence. And I did it for you know, five, six months. Mm -hmm. And then my sponsor at the time said, I think you might be taking it a little too far. You might want to try some healthy masturbation, see how that goes. So I did. And everything was really sensitive with just my fingers. And, but I had to learn how to touch myself because I hadn't done that in a zillion years because toys work quickly. And that was my goal was like, get off as quickly as possible. But there's a, there's a difference. There's an intimacy that I've created with myself by not using vibrators, by just me extending love to myself. 
and loving my body and listening to it and being willing to like, well, this is, this isn't really feel that good. I'm going to try something else. And it's, I've had some really beautiful times and that's gotten me really comfortable with my body. If you haven't taken out the mirror and taken a look at your, your vagina and your, your pussy, go ahead and do it. Like get to know it because I don't know, maybe I'm different, but I think mine is really beautiful. Like, wow, it's so cool looking. I don't know. And know that if a man is excited, he doesn't see your imperfections. He just sees a beautiful woman that wants to have sex with him. And he's excited about that. Yeah, so often we judge ourselves and judge our bodies and think we're unworthy or not worthy enough. Yeah. And what, what are we comparing ourselves to? These photoshopped images or people that their job is to look good? I mean, we have lives and we can't spend 20 hours a day on our physical or all the money we have on plastic surgery. But just Nor would you to... want to necessarily either. No. And it's interesting. I was talking to my 14-year-old daughter the other day about how women carry themselves makes them beautiful. And it's the confidence that makes a woman sexy. The way she walks, the way she makes eye contact, the subtle flirting, that is what makes her sexy. It's not her body shape. Because I've seen some women that are very large by American standards, by you know societal standards, they're so sexy. <laughs> it doesn't matter, their size does not matter. That's a great segue. I'm going to move on to how, how to attract a man that you like. What, what, what's your advice for those women? How to attract a man that you like. Yes. Is first you like yourself. Great answer. You, I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because if you don't like you, why should anybody want to spend time with you? If you can't stand to be alone, for example, you're going to attract somebody at that level, at that vibration that, you know, is needy. He can't stand to be alone. And he's probably going to be jealous and petty and fear-based. So I say, feed yourself, feed your soul, figure out what it is that you like, figure out what you want and call it in. Meditate on that. Like meditate. What's it going to be like with your ideal mate? Who? do you get to be to attract that level of person? There was a time in my life where I felt so bad about myself. I'm like, and I know about like attracts like level of Mm. law of attraction. I'm like, there's no way I would date at this point. I would not want to date somebody at my level. (laughs) So I put the time in, you know, I worked with coaches. I joined a mastermind, you know, women that would support me and would see me and lift me up until I could see myself because I, I couldn't see my beauty at that time. Couldn't see my gifts. And I think a big thing is really learning to accept where you are without judging it. Like learning to tell the truth about where you are is a big one too. For a long time, I wouldn't say what I really thought or what I had done because I felt unlovable but everybody has that stuff. 
everybody does. Everybody has secrets that they don't want people to know. They think like, oh, if they found this out about me, they wouldn't accept me or love me. I'd be alone forever. But it's telling that stuff that sets you free and allows your true self to come out and play. <laughs> so true. So like there's, there's this list that's so good to make and it's where do I experience the love of God or the love of the divine or flow and do more of those things, schedule them in, make them non-negotiable. That could because be called the, passion as well. Yeah. What are you passionate about? <laughs> and the more you do those things, the more you're going to like yourself and the higher your vibration is going to be and the higher vibration man you're going to call in. I absolutely agree. Um, what do you, I mean, how would you define a healthy relationship? I like the Course in Miracles has a great definition. They call it a holy relationship. And it's when you look at your partner and you see no lack. Mm. And, and when you can look at yourself that way, like you don't need your partner. You come to the relationship completely in love with yourselves. And then you just add to each other's lives. You make them that much better. <laughs> and it's just fun. That's great. I know you have a lot of offerings. Um, for empowering women. Do you, do you, would you like to d discuss that as well? That sounds fascinating and very needed. Oh yeah, sure. Right now I am doing private coaching. I went back to the basics because I've redefined my niche and I'm working now, like you mentioned in the beginning with women that have been stuck in their heads and I'm attracting women that are very, very intelligent and analytical, highly accomplished, usually in work at work. And they're cut off from the neck down, which means they don't have access a lot of times to their emotions. They don't know what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. If I ask them, what are you feeling? Like, what language are you speaking? <laughs> and then their bodies, they, they're a little uncomfortable expressing themselves through their bodies. So for example, dancing, they might dance, but be very stiff and like, I don't want to do this. People are looking at me and judging me. Sex, a big one, big one. Um, they a lot of times don't feel worthy of pleasure or they don't feel comfortable in that place of receiving or even, you know, a lot of times they'll do, they'll have sex, but out of obligation sometimes. So how do you work through that with women? It's interesting because it is a process. It's, it's kind of like the windows of their body and their heart have been covered over with layer after layer after layer of things that society has put on them and they've accepted it. And they mm -hmm. said, okay, I'll take that. I'll take that label. I'll take that load of crap. And they are a bundle of shoulds and oughts and musts and have tos. And we just like peel those back a little at a time and get to, okay, well, what would you want to do? Like if you weren't afraid, what would you do? And what have you always wanted to do, but are afraid to say out loud? I you love know, that. Think, giving them permission yeah. to be themselves. Yes. And to dream. Because a lot of us, you know, we even cut ourselves off from that 
dreaming, like a possibility. Like, what do I want? A, a lot of women don't even ask themselves that. They put everybody else first. So it's really interesting. When I'm doing private coaching, I allow myself to be completely divinely guided. And I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> I, I just don't know. So <laughs> one of my clients, she is in her 60s and again, like really uncomfortable with her body. She, <laughs> she decided um, she wanted to get out of her comfort zone. No, she didn't decide that. I decided that would be good for her. <laughs> <laughs> That's what came through that day. And she was in California. And I suggested, what, what would happen if you took cold showers for the next week? And she said, I'll go you one better. I will run into the ocean, which I've never done before. <laughs> and she had her husband videotape her. <laughs> That's great. So she's in her bikini and she starts running into the ocean and her dog tackles her. <laughs> she's, she, she was knocked like face down, but she got back up and she brushed herself up and she ran back into the ocean. And it was so, so beautiful. And in that moment, she had chosen herself. She had chosen her commitment to be uncomfortable. And she said, I don't care what I look like. I don't care that I got knocked down. And it was such a great analogy for life. You know, you get knocked down in life. What do you do? Do you get back up, brush yourself off and keep going toward your commitment, towards your goal? Or do you go back to the shore and cry? And also the self-worth of I am enough in my bikini and running into the beach. And that's very empowering. Yeah. The bikini was another story. Um, that was initially, you know, when she was going to California, I asked her, what, which bathing suit are you wearing? She's like, well, I have a bikini. I, I don't know if I'm going to wear it. And so we, we worked through that and she's absolutely wearing it. She's owning it. Good on her. Yeah. I know you also work with um, uh, spirituality and you talked about divine guidance. How do people follow their divine guidance? It's always there. In my experience, the inner critic voice is the voice of the ego. It speaks first and it speaks loudest. You have to get below that, below that din, that noise that's always there, which requires you to get quiet. And it's uncomfortable for many people when they're beginning a meditation or mindfulness practice. It's so worth it because your freedom lies on the other side of that. Because that voice is a liar. I personally love the Native American term for this. It's called the pretender voice because it's lying all the time. It's telling you stuff that's not true about you. Keeping us small. The problem is that we believe it until we don't. But a lot of people believe it their whole lives, which is sad. And that ego voice wants you to feel separate from everybody else. It wants you to feel separate from your source, from your connection to the divine. It wants you to feel better than some people and worse than or less than other people because it creates separation. What we teach people to do is to keep inquiring, to keep asking. Ask your higher self or God, the divine, whatever you call it. 
I like the phrase, what would you have me do? Or what would you have me see? And just keep asking. And if you keep asking, there will come a whisper, a whisper voice. <clears throat> and that voice will be so unconditionally loving, it will be unmistakable. In my case, it is my voice I hear, but it has a completely different quality to it. It's always loving. It's never shoulding me like you should do this. It's, uh, it's just beautiful and loving. That's and, a great, that's just, a great message. Yeah. And you come to trust it. The, the thing is in our day and age, children are taught not to trust themselves, not to trust their guts. No, you tell your brother you're sorry, but they don't want to, I'm not sorry. No, you tell your brother you're sorry. Your body, your brain, your heart is saying, no, I'm not sorry. And you're told to be other than. You go give grandma a kiss. Ew, no. Or give Uncle Sal a kiss. Well, no, he's gross. You know, he's not safe. So we're taught not to listen to our inner guidance. We have it. We just have been taught to ignore it. What happens when you start listening to it? So it's learning to pay attention to it again and to trust yourself. Like a lot of us aren't comfortable making decisions because we don't want to be wrong. So what? Who cares if you're wrong? Like, I love the concept again. It's called choose again. If you don't like your circumstances, make a different choice. If you made a choice and it didn't turn out the way you thought, who knows how that is going to be used for you? Like you don't know. It's all perfect. <laughs> I agree. I'm almost of the belief that any choice you make can never be wrong anyway. That's one step further. Yes. Even if it doesn't work out as you had planned, it's still the best choice to make at that time. And as you said, choose the aim. Yeah. And, but learning that skill to be decisive is a, a good one too. Like some people will get that assignment from me. Like you get to make 10 decisions today. I don't care what they are, but make them quickly within two seconds. <laughs> that's great. I guess because that also- it's learning. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, learning to trust yourself. It's the best skill you could have. And that's, this all ties into passion, which this show is about your soul guiding you. I always like to ask guests the question. These are two questions. If someone wants to- follow their passion and or find their passion, what is your advice? Oh, I love it. Finding your passion would have to precede following your passion, right? You would Yes. Think. I said them the wrong However, way around. Correct. You are. However, that, was a, that was a test. <laughs> no, I'm joking. However, as long as you find something you're passionate about, you're going to draw opportunities to you that are going to, open up your mind to see other possibilities and accept the fact that you are 100% creative. We are creating all the time, all the time. That's what we are. We're like pure energy, pure creativity. What do you want to create? And start dreaming. I got a good exercise from the artist's way, the book, and it's right five different lives that you would love to have, like just for fun, if you could like for a day be anybody or anything, 
what would it be? And just go create it, like write it out. And then do that. When you do that by the fifth time, you're going to get some ideas like, hmm, you know what? That one I might want to try on for a week. See what that's like. Try it on. What else are you doing? You know, like 90% of our thoughts, and we have what, 50 to 60,000 thoughts a day, 90% of them are the exact same thoughts that we had yesterday. What are we doing that's different? What are we doing to shake things up and create something different? Like if you wanna be the same, then don't do anything, right? If you want something different, you gotta get out of your comfort zone. You gotta you got do something crazy for you. It might not be crazy for me. I have a different comfort zone. But <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> a lot of people don't even know what they like. If I say, what do you like to do? They're like, I don't know. I never thought about it. And I'm like, what? And a lot of times they have to go back to childhood before all their creativity was suppressed and say, no, you must fit in this box. What did you like to do in childhood? Where could you lose yourself for hours? And then try, do some of those things because it will unleash your creativity. Maybe it's playing with Barbie dolls. Maybe it's coloring. So what? Do it. <laughs> Have fun. Like allow yourself. I think it's really important too to nourish the inner child. When you find those things that you love, do more of them. And surround yourself with people that believe in you. If people are saying you're crazy, you can't do that. It, in the beginning, until you get up to a certain level and you really, really believe in yourself, those people can take you out so quickly. So it's really important to find a tribe of people that are going for their dreams. And you can do that in a variety of different ways. One way is to do some journaling and ask, ask your higher self, where do I find these people? You know, who, who would resonate with what I'm doing? And be open because it will come to you in beautiful and unexpected ways. I met a woman who studies my same spiritual book, which is kind of a rare one. It's called The Way of Mastery at my yoga studio. She just plopped next to me and we had this immediate connection because I was open to it. So surrounding yourself with the right people at the right vibe that are going to support your dreams and your goals is really important. I don't know, just have fun, play. Because we're gonna learn the same lessons in life, whether we like, oh, this is drudgery, or we're like, oh yeah, look what I did, isn't that cute? <laughs> yeah. What a great message, you know, be childlike and play because that's one of the essences of who we are. Joy. Yes. Mm. Great message. Karen Saltz, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. It's been very, very, very insightful <laughs> and I've learned a lot. So thank you so much for be and for being so open and honest. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for, you know, just being so delightful and open and loving. I really appreciate your energy and what you're doing on the planet. <laughs> you too. And it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye for now. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more 
passionate 